Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, uh, everyone, and thank you for coming along. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this joint Australian Book Review and Sydney Ideas event. My name is, is Peter Rose. I'm the editor of Australian Book Review. Before we commence proceedings and before I introduce our two speakers, I would like, of course, to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and it is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. We're here tonight, of course, for the Calibre Essay Prize. This was the 11th time we offered the Calibre Prize. Once again, it was open to all writers uh, working in English around the world, and we received entries from, I think, 29 different countries. I think one of the attractions of Calibre for scholars in particular is the opportunity it affords to write about sophisticated themes for a discerning readership without the apparatus that accompanies articles in learned journals and academic monographs. It's a different genre. We're not a learned journal. Um, At a guess, I suppose half of our Calibre winners have come from the Academy and some of them have gone on to write full-length books based on their essay. Uh, And I suspect this may be the case uh, this year too. The judges were um, University of Sydney Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick, the Russianist, uh, Picador publisher and long-time critic and cut his teeth in the pages of the ABR, I'm proud to say, Geordie Williamson, known to many of you, and I was the third judge. For me, for the magazine, for our readers, one of the great things about Calibre is that it has consistently introduced ABR and its readers to writers not previously associated with the magazine. Calibre has gone to ABR stalwarts like um, Sophie Cunningham and Kevin Brophy, but usually the winners have been quite new to us, Um, and the prize here, I'd note, is of course Judge Blind, going back to our first winner, Elizabeth Holdsworth back in 2007. The overall quality was very high this year. We received, I think, about 200 200 entries, uh, and the shortlist was superior, um, and we were delighted to be able to award first prize to um, Michael Adams for his essay, Salt Blood. Michael Cedar knew nearest, closest to the door. Um, And I I can say that few essays have resonated with our readers to to the same extent as Salt Blood. The response has been quite phenomenal, and I'm sure you've heard um, Michael on radio. A little wonder. Salt Blood, apart from being beautifully written and balanced, is highly original. Free diving in Australian Book Review, who would have thought of it? But the essay, as you will hear, is about much more than going deep underwater for long periods. Michael Adams um, 
did his first degree at this university in English. Uh, he teaches and researches at the School of Geography and Sustainable Communities, great interest of his, at the University of Wollongong. And before that, he worked for environment NGOs, National Park Service and Aboriginal organisations. His focus is on human nature relationships, especially with Indigenous and local communities, and he prefers, as he says, full immersion methodologies. He writes in a variety of forms, including narrative non-fiction, online essays and peer-reviewed academic articles. This year we were able, uh, because of the generosity of our patrons, to create a second prize. Hitherto it had been, had been won. Uh, this one is worth uh, $2,500. Place second this year was to, to speak of Sorrow by Darius Sapiri uh, to my uh, left. Darius is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney in the, in the School of Department of International Comparative Literary Studies. He's a prolific writer, um, he's a philosopher, and also has a degree in art history. Most versatile young man, he also writes about literature and film. He has a new essay in the, an essay in the new um, Southerly, um, uh, the Persian Passages um, uh, edition of Southerly. His calibre essay, as you will uh, about to hear, um, is about the many kinds of grief and their different expressions in writing and culture as lament, testimony or ritual. At one level, these two essays published in our two most recent issues of ABR, both on sale outside with Glee, Glee Books. Pick up a copy as you go if you don't subscribe or don't already have it. At one level, they could not be more different stylistically or in subject matter and references. And yet there are clear affinities between them philosophically as became apparent when both essayists spoke at the calendar ceremony at the University of Wollongong in early June. The rapport between both men was pretty instantaneous and apparent and we immediately knew we should present them in public together and I'm pleased that Sydney Ideas agreed, uh, agreed to. Um, uh, but now I'm going to leave it to both men to introduce and read from their essays. They will each speak for about 15 minutes and after that there will be plenty of time for questions, including, I hope, um, um, from the floor as well. Michael Adams is going first. Please welcome him. Thank you, Peter, and, and thanks for coming. I'd just like to echo um, Peter's acknowledgement of the um, Aboriginal people on whose land we meet. And as Peter said, uh, that's a focus of mine. I have had many Indigenous teachers and, and continue to do so. And it's maybe one of the things that took me to doing this is working with um, customary divers in different places in the world. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge ABR for the award and I'm very honoured to share it with Darius. Not only did we have a, a quick rapport, but we dressed the same for the event. <laughs> <laughs> the, and um, again, as Peter said, uh, Sydney Uni is my alma mater some degrees ago. So it's, and this building didn't exist when I was here, so but it's, it's interesting to be here. So I just wanted to talk briefly about um, 
why and how I came to write and then give you a short reading from the essay. The, you know, the modern university, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, the whole the culture, the audit culture, the, you know, let's count every last thing that everybody does, I am not that comfortable with in all kinds of ways. And this piece of work is kind of an example of what some feminist scholars have been um, terming slow scholarship. So I started looking at, I started doing um, freediving three or four years ago, uh, talking to freedivers, doing interviews, you know, researching it. Um, but it took me three years to get it on paper and it wasn't working, as Peter said, in the normal peer-reviewed academic form. I was trying that and it wasn't happening. Um, I was lucky enough to get a residency at Bundanon, the, the artist centre in um, the Shoalhaven, uh, last year in October, which was an absolutely wonderful experience. The, the place is um, crazily beautiful. I threw out everything I'd done, wrote the first draft in three days, and then I shared that residency with a number of other artists, um, painters, musicians, dancers, and a writer, Nam Lee, who probably lots of you know. And I was having a drink with Nam Lee one evening, talking. I was actually talking about freediving, and that I was writing about it, and Nam said, mm, I would be happy to be your first reader, which is not something I would ever have been game to actually ask him. But, um, and he didn't know at that point the content, and he said, look, I'll just, you know, we'll just have a chat and I'll give you a bit of feedback. He, he wrote me an email with the pages of stuff annotated, a multi-page email, and then we had, like, hours of conversation afterwards, and it was a fantastic experience. And he basically said, to summarise all of that volume, you're on the edge of something here, and what you need to do is implicate yourself more, to make yourself more vulnerable in this process which was exactly the right advice, but a reasonably tough call as well. So that's where I tried to go. Um, so that's kind of the essay form. Uh, that's what took me to, to... That was the process, I guess. That the essay form allowed me to bring two different content areas together in a kind of an experimental way, which was my, my immersed and embodied and visceral experience of doing the diving itself and where that took me in relation to the loss that I'd experienced in my own life. It allowed me to bring those things together in a way which, uh, you know, the normal kind of academic publishing would, would not easily do in all kinds of ways. And the, the response to the essay, from my point of view, has actually been reasonably extraordinary. I have done many interviews. I did an interview with Richard Pfizer, which has very large reach. It's still happening. Um, I've been invited into a bunch of places I wouldn't have been invited. I've met a whole lot of people um, that I wouldn't have met um, as a result of doing it. So it's been a very positive experience for me. I'm really grateful to ABR again for, for allowing this to happen in different ways. Okay, so I'll just read, and this is obviously kind of edited. It's not, um, it's not the, in the sequence that you'll read it in the, um, in the journal. On the northeast coast of Bali, Gemalak Bay is wide and peaceful, sheltered from prevailing weather patterns and lined with small fishing villages. The volcano Gunung Agung, the most sacred mountain in Bali, rises above the bay. The bathymetric chart highlights the continuity of the volcano's slope deep into the ocean, depth falling away quickly from shore. We dive amongst the moored fishing boats using a system of buoys and weights to establish guidelines into the depths. In the water, with one hand loosely on the line to keep myself oriented, I breathe up, building the oxygen stores in my body. 
Visibility is about 10 metres, then light disappears into milky blue darkness as I turn and dive. The white guide rope drifts past my mask until I reach the depth plate and pause, consciously relaxing my body, emptying my mind. Mirroring our time in the tiny sea of the amniotic sac, freediving is the most profound engagement between humans and oceans, the unmediated body immersed and uncontrolled in salt water. It is simultaneously planetary and intensely intimate. The ocean is both all around us and within us. 10 metres, 30 feet, the point of neutral buoyancy where the weight of the sea above cancels your body's natural flotation is five fathoms in the old marine depth measure as an aerial song in the tempest. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones a coral made, those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Our modern word fathom comes from the ancient word fathom, meaning an arm span, something that embraces. It also means to understand, to get to the bottom of something. I didn't start freediving to understand mortality, but that is the direction it has led me. Diving is the window that, from Simone Vale, makes visible the possibility of death that lies locked up in each moment. Herman Melville put the same thought into the whaleboat. It is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realise the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. Although he died when I was 14, I saw my father's death certificate for the first time this year. Single word entries sketched the story. At age 45, he was living in a caravan in North Queensland, working menial jobs. He sat down alone one evening on a beach with a handful of pills and a bottle of scotch to kill himself. He asphyxiated on his vomit and was found days later. Four brief entries on a faded government form with a tsunami of hurt and loss behind them and a flood of confusion and misunderstanding to come. I knew the basics of that story but was not prepared for the shock of the typed words labourer, caravan park, suffocation. After Bali, I dive at Hanaunau Bay in Hawaii, this time with legendary diver Carlos Isles. All my diving so far had been within the established structures of modern freediving with guide ropes, floats, marker plates, lots of focus on metres of depth, minutes of breath hold and the physics and physiology of pressure. In Hawaii, Carlos, who is 75, didn't talk about technique at all. We sat at the edge of the water and talked about philosophy for an hour before our dives together and then he taught experientially. I copied his movements. We dived for an hour or so and then we swam together for about a mile out to the northern point of Hanaunau Bay and back. The next day I went back and repeated it all, but this time alone, breaking the cardinal rule of modern freediving. The core and obvious lesson for me from Carlos was the ocean is not a linear system. Nonlinear systems are typically described as counterintuitive, unpredictable or chaotic. We can think of the ocean as this, as vast, turbulent, shifting, untamed, unknowable, the dark abyss. Floating above 100 metres of blue depth, that abyss felt very real. As Carlos says, soon the sharks will start circling in your prefrontal lobes. They are just out of sight, but you are sure they are there. Carlos talked about this fear and how you had to throw away these acculturated imaginings. 
these death anxieties and focus on your body's ancient knowledge. Feeling the ocean all the way through your body, seeing it in every direction you can look, experiencing sound and silence and light transformed by the depth and thickness of water. These embodied experiences unground our linear, rational, bounded structures of thought. Swimming and diving alone on a quiet, hot morning in Hanano Bay, feeling strong and comfortable in my body, I am slowly unmoored, slowly floating away from risk assessments and calculations and into the warm embrace of the peaceful bay. I have failed to understand my father's suicide all my life. There was no note, no message. I had not seen him for a year. Freediving has shown me a new way to understand death. In the yoga traditions, breathing in engulfs you with life. Breathing out generously gives that life back out into the world. After deep practice of yoga breath control, pranayama, the need to breathe often falls away for long, relaxed minutes. As the water closes over my head each time I dive, I let go my earthly concerns to sink into the blue embrace of an alternate world. On that dune in the tropical night, my father took a different measure on his life and cast off his quotidian moorings. One of those moorings was me, and I have to fathom the place in my life of both harbour and open sea, port and storm. I have lived much of my life feeling marginal, feeling like an imposter in my jobs. I expect rejection, a predictable outcome of two parents leaving sequentially when I was young. Only recently have I begun to understand that there might be strengths in those places on the margins. Freediving alone, freediving actually free of all that positivist framing and safety paraphernalia and other people, brought me back to my father's death. He had become more and more marginal to what the world considers important and eventually, alone, stepped off that edge, stepped free of all that judgement and demand. There is no possibility of answers once that boundary is crossed. Alone, immersed in the spaces of the silent water, I may be learning to let go of the questions. In deep blue water, the freediver is exposed in every direction, completely vulnerable. That vast, continuous space, that absence, is an entry, an opening. Empty space is open to anyone, an invitation. Can I live without trying to fill the silences and empty spaces? Can I learn to live in those silences and spaces? In the extraordinary empty bliss at the end of a yoga session, when my teachers cut their hands over my ears in the penultimate position of Shavasana, appropriately the corpse pose, the muted roar of the ocean fills the silence, the tides of salt blood pulsing through my body. It feels like the hand of God. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, very much. And uh, now please welcome Darius Sapiri to uh, speak about to speak of sorrow. Good evening. I hope you're all well, healthy, happy. Thank you for being here. Thank you to the ABR, to Sydney Ideas, and to Michael for his fantastic essay. Uh, although I did tell him not to wear a blue denim shirt. But, um. So the genesis of, of my essay, um, which begins with me in the womb, a lot like Michael's, although he, he's diving, but he, he begins, um, it is quiet and 
uh, it is quiet and deep and dark blue, very womb-like. And so I didn't start writing mine in the womb. Uh, that's Tristram, Tristram and Shandy. Um, but I, I started thinking about um, the essay last year. Um, what my essay and Michael's have in common, I think, is... Uh, uh, there's a lot of things, but there's the journey of descent, of, of going down, and then tr- the aspect of transformation, the, the work of sorrow and grief and uh, confronting mortality to, to be changed, to be transformed. And last year I gave a, a paper on the place of grief, or ram, as we call it in Persian, uh, Iranian society at an Iranian studies conference. And around the same time I was given a book, a very, very marvelous and beautiful book, by it's 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 the a very very beautiful exploration of many many aspects of um, Aboriginal culture from the voice of Margaret Kemare Turner. She's uh, an Arente speaker, and these uh, marvelous marvelous passages of of her wisdom were recorded and then uh, published as a book, which is called "What It Means to Be an Aboriginal Person," and. It has, it has so much in it, but I was very taken with two chapters, one on mourning and one on healing. In the chapter on mourning, which has a very, very beautiful subtitle, by the way, which is called uh, When Sad People's Fires Are Burning. You know, very, very beautiful. And there she says, she, she, there's a lot of wisdom there. One thing I really liked was when she said that for her and her mother's and, and um, her mother's mother, they did this thing at sunrise and sunset where they they had a sadness time a time of sorrow and uh i quote her verbatim she says that the the sadness of watching the sun come up and the sadness of watching the sun go down is the law and she says that's not a very it's 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 fading that custom but it it was a very important one for her and for her um for her for uh, for her ancestors and I thought that's that's a wonderful, wonderful ritual to have, and people might think that somewhat quaint. But I I, I love the the aspect of connecting the interior world of the human to the to the wider natural world, and the way that what you're really dealing with there, dawn and dusk, are liminal spaces, and liminality is is an important part, I think, of using grief to be transformed, as as Michael deals with very much in his essay. And so uh, from there. I found a couple of other things that, that interested me in what she said, that she said that, that for her people, sadness has to be taken out and stretched out so that it can, it can sort of, otherwise it, you can't bear it. And that came up when I started looking at a website called whatsyourgrief.com and I found some very, very beautiful... Uh, let me, let me read one for you, actually. She's, there's one by a woman here where she says, My husband of 26 years killed himself over a year ago, and it has been very hard. I was lucky to find some very awesome therapy groups to help me put a little ground under my feet, and I have constantly lamented the fact that our society doesn't have grief rituals to help me. I look at other cultures who allow the bereaved to cry and wail, for seven days or support the bereaved in ways unheard of where I live. 
And then I also found this other woman saying that um, grief is a cape made of lead. You slowly get used to the weight, but you are unable to take it off. It's hard to breathe or to laugh. I'm the mother of a young teen boy who has been a missing child, a cold case for almost 22 years. There is no answer, no grave to visit. Grief is a mountain without a peak. And I do go into the story of my uncle, which I, I could have developed further, and I think perhaps I should have. I didn't have Nam Lee to, to tell me to go further. But I, what I didn't say in there, my uncle was killed, he was murdered, but the, what I didn't say is that they, they never found the, the person who did it. There were calls for witnesses and so on, no, nobody came forth. And so there was a lack of closure there uh, that's gone on and on, I think, uh, a lot like perhaps with Michael, the, the unanswered questions. And so in that kind of a situation, I think you start to think about what, what else it is that could, that could speak to, those, to that lack. And so whereas Michael is dealing with a, a physical descent into a, the, the liquid element of water, mine is looking much more at consciousness itself, which is, for most of us, I think, um, expanded and ameliorated through art and through the rituals that we have in culture. So then I started to ask, um, why, why is it important to have knowledge of grief? You know, why... Why would we need to have sorrow work? And the answer, I think, is that a lot of things don't go away. They stay, they stay around, they stay, and they kind of veil us and, and, a, and a deeper, more fuller engagement with life. And so, you, you know, you get that in Slessa, in the Five Bells, with the, those amazing lines of the, um, the dead man shouting at him. He says... Um, are you shouting at me, dead man, squeezing your face in agonies of speech on speechless pains? Cry louder, beat the windows, bawl your name. I think there's very much a way in which things do keep knocking and you can deny and turn away from many, many kinds of, of tragedy and calamity, personal ones and also public and national ones. So from the personal grief of bereavement, I, I, I thought, well, why not write something where that is, I'm, I'm exploring whether that personal grief, what it has to do with uh, communal or wider kinds of grief, much the same way as many, many famous elegies start out as a, as a personal loss and then they, Tennyson's In Memoriam is probably the best example where it begins with that intense uh, anguish loss and then it spreads out until it just fills the whole world and is, is offering a kind of healing for the whole world and you get that very much in Persian culture as well uh, most particularly in Hafez who is uh, the most famous and most beloved poet in, in Persian there's so much there to do with grief but it's a grief that as I say in the essay I'm, I'm very adamant that it has to be said that it's a grief that is inextricably intertwined with praise so they always go together they're never separate and you do get that in, in a lot of our uh, great English masters as well Blake uh, that's very much there I think um, you could think of so many phrases of his uh, 
Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. And Rilke, those of you who know and love Rilke will know very much that's always there in the elegies. Um, and but this is something I've known from Harfas where lots and lots of things happen with grief. So it, it fills out and it swells and it's connected to the whole world. It's also something that it inverts things. It, it, it turns things uh, over on their head. And that's what I'm very, very interested in. You get marvelous, marvelous passages where that happens. You also get the, the adamance that grief has to be confronted full on and even increased. And in that increase, you get the possibility of, of transformation. He says, for instance, just to quote one, دلا بسوز که سوز تو کارها بکند نیاز نیم شبی دفع صد بلا بکند He says, O oh heart, burn, increase your burning, burn more, for your burning does great things. It has potential, in other words. Uh, and the, the cries of, of the middle of the night uh, can ward off a hundred calamities. And so, I will now read uh, a little bit of the beginning of my essay and show you uh, what kind of things I was, I was interested in. It begins in Tehran in April of 1987 uh, when my mother was carrying me. Descending in a stream of arpeggio broken chords as we move through night and the vernal air down into the green earth, my mother thought she heard a children's song on the stairs as the bombs fell cascading. Like bells, bells of Hades sounding out inverted intervals, the bombs fell interminably. The sirens that were singing sang us downward to the damp islands of the underground shelter a honeycomb under the Tehran metropolis, buzzing with heat-maddened, with death-maddened men and women. My mother was quick with child, and as she ran barefoot down the spiraling stairs, she was engulfed by the yawning mouth of the desecrated earth. It was two months shy of my birth. All was opaque and suffocating. Concrete shards broke and fell from the ceiling. Missiles rained down in deluge. As a whale yawning wide, trenches on the battlefront split and men were dragged into the void. Later, as I came up out of the waters, I knew this sorrow would abide. I tasted a fruit with an ashen core and I saw all over the earth ashes and soot spread abroad, veiling the stars, this shroud. Vaslav Nijinsky, before going mad, wrote in his diaries that he felt the tremendous presence of God without fear. I do not want to crack, he insisted, but to say the truth. Decades later, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, driven to express his moral vision of humanity charged with responsibilities of compassion, might have said the same. Undergoing extraordinary anguish, Solzhenitsyn testified to our responses to life's beauty and harshness. He sank into a hell that found there the possibility to realizing a kind of heaven, 
fulfilling the desire expressed by Greek poet Odysseus Elitis. I want to descend the steps, to fall into this verdant fire, and then to ascend like an angel of the Lord. It is little wonder that I crave depths, catacombs, the belly of the whale, that I seek nourishment like the heart roots of Tehran's old sycamore trees. My life began with my mother's descent into underground bomb shelters during the War of the Cities, late in the Iran-Iraq War, when Saddam Hussein, deploying Soviet missiles, rained death on Iranian cities. Thousands of civilians, like hundreds of thousands of Iraqi and Iranian conscripts, were killed. The world watched, did nothing, and finally gave Saddam more weapons, including poison gas. After surviving this plunge, there was a figurative one, a schooling with millennia-old Persian poetry and music in the inner dimension of depth, often expressing sorrow. The gift of such formative encounters arises from the reality that grief requires inwardness if it is to be more than pathology. Inchoate in my mind, a product of this early experience of grief as soulful but transformative, was the sense that the aftermath of grief depended on the psychological, spiritual and creative frameworks in which it takes place. Grief is best when it comes in alchemical modes. For metamorphosis to take place, we need a transformative, alchemical space presided by the psychopomp Hermes, who will lead us as he led Priam, almost destroyed by grief, to Achilles, both afterwards wholly changed. Mythologically, the descent was always to an inner space. We are familiar with these mythological descents to the underworld, katabasis in Greek. Before Odysseus in Dante's Inferno, there was Gilgamesh, Osiris, Inanna, Hercules, and Orpheus. After him, Aeneas and Christ. And today, we too enter the Inferno with trials, losses, failures, wrongdoing in public and private, terror and trauma. Often the Inferno is called depression, the black dog. Yet in Australia, what are the languages to express grief and mourning? Are they accessible? Appropriate? What is the function of these modes of expression in Australia? We know, despite our successes, there is enormous trauma in our history. We have made a kind of hell here and abroad, and we cover them up. Coming from Iran, where grief is ubiquitous, it seems that only with the deaths of relatives and isolated shocking events is grief expressed in Australia. The grief with which I want to deal is not only bereavement, which some, narrowing the definition, take grief to be, though that grief, too, gives us many opportunities for growth. My family learned this when it lost a son and a brother, my uncle, to senseless violence. He was 32. There is much to lament, including the massacres and dispossession of Aboriginal peoples and subsequent policies of inhuman kinds, a background hum to all our lives. Such brutalities are not only matters of political responsibility and reparation, they are psychic wounds that will not disappear until they are dealt with through appropriate modes of warning, mourning. Wars followed in which men were butchered or, as with Vietnam, returned psychologically damaged. Today we note the confinement of people in offshore detention in gulag-like conditions. There is also the matter of ecological catastrophe, mass extinction of species and the unravelling of ecosystems. 
Audra Mitchell calls this the unmaking of being. She argues that it needs to be experienced as more than statistics. Quote, no matter how much data we collect on past and possible future extinctions, we can never have experienced extinction empirically. But what we learn from the story of Jonah, with his repeated denial of God's instructions, is that katabasis can be avoided, but it keeps calling. In our success-crazed society, it is necessary to remember Icarus and katabasis, sinking down, bottom pulled out from under us in the blink of an eye, a swift fall, leaving the world of glittering things, going to ashes and cinders, loss of normality, prestige, success and order, embrace of doubt, mourning, danger and isolation. Thank you. Thank you, Darius, very much. I, I, I sat there um, wishing perhaps I wasn't alone that I had a, had a Persian memory, I must say. Um, we are a one-mic family tonight, so I'm going to invite our two Calabristas uh, over to the microphone shortly. I'm, I suspect that they will each have questions to put to, to each other, and then we will welcome, welcome uh, uh, questions. Uh, from anyone here, um, the, uh, uh, but but mine would concern the. You've both chosen to to write about uh, early uh, losses and and grief, and there may be some readers of Darius's in in this issue, Darius's essay, who will want to know uh, more about your your lost uncle. Readers are a, a memoir. The memoir form are. Uh, particularly nosy, but then I do think that the essay lends itself towards great economy. Less is more in the essay form, particularly when writing, I think, about potential uh, subjects with sentimental potential. Um, and I think you both do so um, very um, profoundly, subtly, and movingly in those in those economical ways. But my my question would be perhaps to you, Mike, because I suspect that neither of you has written about these. Um, these losses um, before. Um, uh, how how difficult? Uh, what kind of a balancing act and and with uh, an ethical balancing act was it to introduce these sorrowful subjects in an essay intended for for the public in these forms? Rebecca Solnit says, you know, we write the things that we can't say to the people closest to us. And so it was a bit that for me. It is certainly true. I'd never written about um, what, what you know what I've read tonight um, at all. And it was you know part of the prompt for me, the free diving stuff. You know that's a photograph of one of my teachers. Um, it, it takes you physically close to death. But when I spoke to free divers, they all say, no, 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 we don't think about death, it's not about death, there's all this safety stuff, we do it because it's fun and all this stuff. And I was just constantly thinking about death. All, I ha all you have to do down there is breathe out and you don't get to the surface. Like, it's, you know, it's an interesting kind of a game. Um, and it was that that made, because I was thinking about death, I was then thinking about my father's death. And, and you know, as I said, I've never made sense of that and presumably never will, but it, it gave me some kind of a vehicle to put my thoughts out about that, yeah. I have 
written a number of poems about my uncle, and I thought about putting them in. Um, it's a little... It, it, it lends itself, I think, more to poetry, perhaps, the situation of my uncle, because I was six. Michael was a bit older, 14, with his father. So there's a, you're dealing with a lack of, of material, first of all. Um, what I remember, though, particularly of my uncle were more isolated snapshots of him with me, um, a tremendous amount of love exuding from him, which when you're a child, you're a little bit like a pet. You can feel this kind of, like, you know how dogs see in infrared. You know, children can sense that, I think, if people are nasty or, or loving, they give off a kind of heat signal, an emotional one. And, and um, his was completely uh, uh, just love. But then when he died, when you're six, it's a funny age, I guess. You, you, you're not young enough to rem forget about it all afterwards. As if you know, if you were three or four, you probably would. Um, but six is—you not—you don't really know exactly what death is yet, or how final it is. You're starting to learn, I think. So, but I—I I didn't understand a lot of it then, and I probably still don't now. But I, I, with crystal clarity, I remember a lot of the scenes at the, the people's houses and the funeral at Rookwood. Uh, people screaming. Uh, my grandmother fainting, those kind of things. And particularly I remember, which is why I put in, the, the, I mentioned the shroud a couple of times at the beginning, at the end. I don't know if people know, but there, there aren't any coffins in Iranian funerals. They're, they're wrapped in a white shroud and they're put straight in the earth. And that's, that's quite, it's quite memorable to see that. And then you later on you think of, of, of how that death kind of shrouds as I said, I think what we're dealing with is the possibility for unmourned, ungrieved calamities of, of any kind, public and private ones, to be a kind of shroud between us and, and, and a deeper life, which is something that is all through Persian poetry, by the way. The, the veil is a massive symbol there. It's, it is the word, uh, the Arabic word hijab that the, the, the Persian poets use, a word which everybody associates, unfortunately, with, with you know, political... Uh, contentious political issues, but for, for Hafez and the other uh, classical Persian poets, the hijab is what it veils you from seeing uh, uh, the full the fullness of things, and so that's what has to be that's what has to be worked through. And it is in a lot of other elegies, I think. Um, uh, there's that I don't know if people have read that thing by Victor Hugo, the Le Contemplation. Um, that's all about his daughter Leopoldine. And she was only 19 when she drowned with her husband, too, who tried to save her. And so you get these amazing things. I, rem I remember them very well. He says, one in one place, T'attends mon espoir, ma charité, ma foi. Ton linsol toujours flotte entre la vie et moi. Your tomb is my, my, my faith, my hope, my love. Your your shroud always veil always a veil between me and life and so that was what i, I tried to work in um through the essay um i, I do think uh, it could have i could have gone further into that on on, on reading it again um perhaps uh, as you said maybe that's for a later later thing and, and speaking of later things uh, michael the the response to your 
essay, um, Salt Blood, has really been remarkable. I don't think anything else I've published in my many years of ABR has resonated, and it will go on resonating. It's only two months old, and I'm sure it will appear another in, 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 in volume form. But um, what, what and, and that attests to this fascination, like when we all read it at ABR, free dive, and we all stood around, couldn't believe what we were, what we were reading. It's partly the fascination, the curiosity factor there, but then the the profundity in in the essay. What what do you what do you think you will do with the the, the material? I mean, it is you know it's, it has been very interesting because there, there has been a lot of focus and. As I've said to some people, it's kind of like you know I'm a I'm an academic. Um, I'm expected to write in a conventional peer-reviewed blah blah blah, you know all that stuff. And the response to the Calibre essay has, in some respects, authorised me to continue to write this way. And it's clearly given me a much bigger and different audience to have this conversation with than you know a group of my academic peers in whatever discipline. Um, which I'm very happy about. It's, it's opened all kinds of conversations and all kinds of avenues which um, I'm very interested to pursue. So I, I will continue to write in you know, the normal conventional academic form, but, but I seriously hope to pursue this form of writing in a different way. And you know, it's one of the... Um, like I spent, as I said, I've spent a lot of time with Indigenous people and I realised at some point in my work that so I spent a lot of time in the bush, like outdoors with indigenous people. And all of that time, I was doing kind of policy related work. All of that time we would deal with what I was meant to be doing and people would be consistently talking to me about the sacred in all kinds of ways. They would be interpreting what I was seeing in completely non-rational, as we would say, terms. And I realised at some point I had never expressed that. It, it was in none of my work. Like this was happening over and over again, completely consistent. I'm invited into all these worlds. I'm being taught in this way. And I had not expressed any of it at all. And I thought, what the hell is that? What, why have I edited that out? like the most important lesson I am being given. Like, yes, I'm doing useful work, I'm helping people in, you know, the nuts and bolts and mechanics of their life, but the big message is this other thing. And that's what the free dive essay let me go into as well. Like, much of it was informed, even though it doesn't deal with it, by my teachings from Indigenous people in different ways. So I, I want to stop ignoring that, essentially. Yeah. So. Are there any uh, questions? Do Questions for yes, we do. Um, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Darius. I uh, enjoyed uh, both of your readings and thoughts tremendously. Um, it's, it's probably fair to say we live in a largely secular uh, world in Australia at the moment, and a world that's not only secular but a sort of late capitalist or neoliberal society uh, marked by instrumental rationality uh, and various forms of skepticism. And I just yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on how we're able to deal with loss uh, and trauma uh, and these sorts of things in a society where ritual uh, and some of those uh, avenues for meaning making uh, perhaps are less now than they were several hundred years ago and where medical science manages to keep death and uh, suffering at bay much of the time. Uh, just in your personal experiences and thoughts, how much do you think the um, we live in shapes the way we're able to respond to loss, and is it always um, transformative? Is that a necessary outcome, or perhaps is it just something that happens uh, which we don't have much capacity to, to respond to? 
That's like a huge question. Let's <laughs> <laughs> have another, another lecture. <laughs> but look, I mean, I, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, I guess from where I am, that path feels like a dead end. That there's not a way out if you keep going that way. So that's been the lesson to me from Indigenous people but also from dealing with you know, what people like to call the non-human these days. So the, you know, an engagement with the ocean, like doing that. Um, there's no other people, there's no, you know, it's this, it's this other huge thing on the planet. Um, and the, you know, Darius writes really beautifully about it in, in a number of different ways, but the, I wanted to, if I can, if I can just find the quote, um, he quotes Joseph Campbell who says, one may refuse the heroic journey to the transformative space and stay in town. That's what you're saying. That's what we do. We stay in town. And, like, you know, I don't necessarily like the heroic tag, but, um, you know, I think, you know, if we want to engage with the Anthropocene with all those ideas about these trajectories, and, you know, the Anthropocene is kind of the polite term for the apocalypse in some respects. And, you know, my, my work with Indigenous people, Indigenous people live in the post-apocalypse of colonisation. They know what it, that's about. And we, you know, we live in a little bubble in the West and particularly in Australia, and so it's very easy to think, oh, it's something in the future and somewhere else. You go to India, you go to remote Aboriginal communities, you go to Redfern, it's right there in people's daily life in all kinds of ways. And so I think, for all of us, cushioned, you know, protected, bloody blah the lessons for us are from those people who are already there in, in how we're going to deal with it, how we're going to engage with it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Michael, and thanks, Seamus, for the question. Um, we, we, we did want to... We, we mentioned, Michael and I, that this is something that was very important with both our essays, um, denial, you know, that... Um, there's no other choice, as, as Michael said. Um, and I think that's why mythologies and narratives are so important. And, and I, I know Seamus, and Seamus deals with narratives himself, narratives of pain. Um, and I, I just don't see how you could, you could, you could go on, uh, personally or societally, without archetypal and mythological journeys and quests that are, that are, that are imagined for you. But we have... There's lots of choices, and that's why there's a lot of material in my essay um, sitting, sitting side by side. Different kinds of narratives. For instance, uh, Solzhenitsyn is very testimonial. It's like an accumulation of, of, of the truth in the face of, of what would otherwise you know, seek to, to cover up massive uh, abuse and injustice. Uh, but then you have, uh, at the end of the essay, I bring up uh, a marvelous set of poems of uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, the Spanish poet, and they have a, a surrealistic quality, but also a ferocious energy. Just the, um, they're on fire. They're they're like a kind of biblical prophet coming out of the desert, you know, um, um, crying out of the wilderness. And as I said, with quoting um, quoting Hafez um, and Slesser and people like that, I think our artists are very good at reminding us that um, not only is, is there sort of no escape because these things keep knocking and calling, but the further you go into to griefs and sorrows, um, the more potential they show. And it's a potential that otherwise 
may not just show itself at all. Um, so then when you asked, um, is it always transformative? Um, no, the work of sorrow, I think, is, is always transformative. It always has the potential for great transformation. But um, simply uh, pain, uh, un unfiltered, un narrativized, I, I don't think it can be, can be very untransformative. It can keep you very small. Um, and so you, you start dealing with things like vulnerability, which Michael uh, raised here and also very beautifully in his essay. Um, you deal with, you, you have, for instance, Michael's experiences down in the sea, the limitlessness of it, is, it's like the, the, old, the, the concept of the romantic sublime. It's terror, but it's also ecstasy. It's also potential for expansion. And there's a little bit, there's a passage in mine where I, I went down to Lake George, which has a similar openness and expansiveness. And that's what I think is, is, a, is a marvelous way forward personally and, and societally, where you, you, you deal with whatever calamity or injustice in you, and you bring in the aspect of something limitless or infinite. And that's where, again, you, you go to, as, as Michael raised, the, the sacred. And I, I don't know how you could do a lot of the deeper, harder things that Michael and I are, are, are bringing up with, uh, personally and uh, societally without, without some sense of the sacred. You know, religion or without religion, I think the sacred is, is, is going to be at the center of it. And art, I think we still have art and artists who, who kind of create small personal mythologies, but then they... Um, such wisdom as well in those. So I think there are many, many opportunities and... and but all of them are transformative, I think. More questions? So, like, we've, we've kind of opened this conversation already, but um, one of the other things Darius says is the exploration of grief uncovers persistent distrust of its open expression, which is, you know, your point as well. And the, you know, one of the... Like I've had a, like this media interest and stuff in the essay and, and so the story's gone out there in various ways. But one of the things that happened is that quite a lot of people got in touch with me, including people I already knew, to talk about suicide and loss in their own families, things I didn't know, you know, people who I knew, but I didn't know anything about that story at all. And the, this, the open expression of my loss allowed those conversations to happen. And which has been a very kind of humbling experience for me um, in different ways. And so I guess I'm interested, you know, your essay is only just coming out, but what you feel about that, that issue of the open expression and also because, like, in Persian culture, obviously, there's kind of a form for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, there are many forms which are given to people by, by artists and by mystics and people like that who then crystallise the, the expression and they become vernacular, they become part of the kind of zeitgeist, if you want to use that word, part of the, the uh, consciousness. Um, that's what I was, I, was, I was asking in the essay. I'm, I'm still not even sure about Australia. I mean, the thing that comes up all the time for when you mention public lament is, is Anzac Day, um, and that's contentious as it is. Um, I think that'll go on. And it has a very important solemn element that, that surely means a lot to, to other pe to many, many people. And it is called a, a kind of secular religion in a way. Um, the question is, is that enough, you know, if it's just limited to that one day? And what I be did begin, begin by saying is, is you know, do, do we have enough expressions? Mm. 
Um, and if we don't, it's a kind of paucity or it's a lack, and then you, you struggle uh, personally and communally to... to uh, when, when, a, when, a, when an injustice or a calamity hits you, uh, you're kind of blindsided. I think that's the danger when those forms aren't there. Um, and it doesn't mean, I think, in other cultures who have those forms more richly that they sort out all their problems. You know? Iran is a very, very uh, prob- you know, problematic society in many ways. Um, and then there's always the charge of the people... Lay. You hear this from Iranians. It's just too much sorrow, they say. It's just depressing, and we shouldn't... We should be more German, you know, more um, <laughs> more efficient and more um, less. But that's that's a charge, you know, that this is this is kind of wallowing. And and indeed, uh, we hear that all the time, as I, as I briefly said in the in the essay. It's um, Anzac Day and Australia Day. Those are contentious because people. You have one set of people saying, um, get over it, essentially, in some form, you know, maybe not in so many words, but. Um, the question is, um, if we can't get over these things personally and, and publicly, then, then how are we going to navigate them? And I, th- I think you need, you need the sacred, you need um, a sense of some gentleness or compassion. Um, calm helps if, if that can be mustered. But aesthetics, I think beauty, imagination is very, very important, uh, especially when you're dealing with, um, I mean, how are non-Indigenous people supposed to connect with with, with the sorrows of, of indigenous people, if we don't have um, the, the imaginative capacity to enter into that. Um, but there are many, many stories and songs that are, that are around from you know, manifold places to... I was just listening to that um, beautiful song, I don't know if people know it, by Kev Carmody and, and Paul Kelly. Uh, it's, it's about um, uh, Vincent Lingiari. Uh, who was a Gurindji man who walked off uh, back in the 60s. Some of you may know this folk song, um, From Little Things. From little things, big things grow. Um, and it, it, it's not exactly about sorrow, it's more resistance. Um, but it, it, I heard there was a concert like five years ago and um, everybody in the crowd sang along. And that's 11 verses, which is pretty much like uh, you know, 5,000 people reciting 11 quatrains of poetry. So it can be done, but it's given to them by, by you know, people like that. Uh, with, in their case, you, know, you add a great chord progression, it's a lot easier. Uh, but once that's out there, you know, now people who, who, who hadn't heard of that Gurindji walkout n- now know exactly what it's about. And, and um, in a way, once it's given, it's, it, it never goes away. And that's about the, the long act of, of, of the long work of memory and, uh, and testimony. And... I think beauty really helps a lot in that, and then that's the way that's the way in which I mean grief takes you back to praise because they're both about a full engagement with life and not shying away from the um, the harder aspects of things um, and they they intertwine I think very much in a lot of literatures and cultures and probably in our personal experiences moments where happiness is not really what what's important it's rather um um, well, as, as Yeats says, a fierce, terrible beauty, you know, that kind of thing. The, the other thing, sorry, Peter, <laughs> which I think comes out of the two essays is the intergenerational aspect. Like we both, I talk about my father and, and Darius talks about his uncle and his mother and the process, you know, what happened to Darius in the womb. Um, and, you know, part of the thing for me was... Um, that provoked the engagement with my father's death, 
I was 14 was my own son being the father of my own son at age 14, and we, which was a very problematic relationship. We have a great relationship now, but it was terrible then. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I don't know how to do this. Nobody did this when I was this old for me. Um, and that the so, so that was a big learning experience for me. And um, you know, in some ways, I feel guilty about my failures as a parent to, to my son at that age. But but from the perspective of now, this essay form and the ABR kind of letting me explore this issue, um, you know, one of the things I think that I have not done for my children, it comes back to your question, is taught them about death. Like, we are all going to die in different ways and at different times. And, you know, as we were saying before, we push that knowledge away in all kinds of ways in our society. We, you know, we do not want to talk about that. We do not want to explore that path, but it's going to happen. And as Darius is saying, if you know, if there, are, if there are cultural forms of engagement with death, then potentially that, when that happens for my children, you know, for everybody, it's a bit of an easier journey. So it's, and, you know, my kids are sitting back, they read, I gave this to my essay to them to read because my son is written into it in not a problematic way, but, um, and they, they both, my son said, oh, yeah, it's all right, it's kind of a bit all over the place. Um, and, oh. and my... Um, <laughs> My daughter suggested, no inheritance for him. <laughs> my daughter suggested uh, very usefully that I change the title, um, and she's a writer as well. She's 18, um, but but they were they were not confronted by it, which was very reassuring to me, um, because you know you you realise when you get to a certain point with your with your kids, there's a whole bunch of your life they actually don't know anything about it at all. You've never spoken to them about, it. and so this essay let me do it um, in, in different ways. So, like, I think I have unfinished work about my relationship to my children about dealing with death in the ways that I have been taught about death and learnt about death in different ways. And, you know, you start your essay in your mother's womb. Mm. And so that, I think that intergenerational aspect is really interesting in, in this journey. That we the, qu the question I had for you, though, is how long before all this stuff came up? Because you have that quote... Um, I didn't, I think it's the pull quote, isn't it? I didn't free dive to start contemplating mortality, but that is where it has led me. Uh, how long before your father, before mortality started coming up? So, you know, that, that, that quote I read of yours right at the beginning about we can stay in town, well, I stayed in town. The, Even know, after you started this... No, no, before. Like, the free diving okay, thing, yeah. it, was, it was the two things. It, well, three things. It was engaging with death, consciously engaging with death, taking yourself into a place where you're quite close to physical, you know, the, the physical risk of death. It was my son being the age he was when, when my father had killed himself, like those things coming together. And then completely out of the blue, my mother giving me a file of documents while I tried to work something out and finding amongst that file of documents this single yellowed typewritten page of my father's death certificate and reading that and going, holy crap. So, yeah. 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 There was also something about how we all know how to free dive, or we all have mm. the, um, mm. the mammalian diving reflex, uh, but then you say until, that, that's until six months of age. What happens after that? Why do we, why do we lose it's, that? You know, if you take an infant, if you take an infant and immerse them in water, they hold their breath, open their eyes and start to swim. No problem. Uh, there's beautiful images of that. Where that tends to disappear is when they start walking. 
they become, they go from a marine creature in the amniotic sac to a terrestrial creature using their legs. And like, there's much about the physiology of free diving and these things that we don't actually know. But you know, one, of the one of the things about the process is that you are, you are sort of taking yourself back through an evolutionary process. And, you know, it sounds incredibly cliche to say going back into the womb, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that except in this kind of immense sense of connection to everything, which is a crazy, amazing experience. That's, that's what you call the world ocean, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, we, like our, the fluids in our body, our tears, our blood, our, it's the same salt composition as ancient oceans. There was a point in our evolution when the fluid transport in our bodies was seawater and we continue to carry that within us. And that's what allows us to go back and to have these kinds of experiences, which is where your essay ends. It's a beautiful last sentence, isn't it, Peter? I was just about to ask. He says... Uh, the, the transformative encounter allows us to connect the world ocean to the ocean within so that we may understand the ways in which we live and die together and alone on this planet. You've got a crazy memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael's essay, I was about to, to mention that and ask um, uh, Michael uh, to read the last a few paragraphs because the essay ends on a powerful note of um, acceptance and, and tranquility, um, which after the material before is, is, is very moving and, and, and stirring. I mean, would you like to read it? Sure. I've got it. Oh, yeah. They're, they're the last <laughs> ones. Maybe from there, there on, to there. Okay. We'll close with this. Okay, thanks. I have one sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Well, before the closing, yeah. yes, yes. your question. Um, it's euthanasia is legalised, which actually will be. Is this opening up potentially a whole area that people are going to suddenly want to explore all these areas that we're talking about tonight and to find reasons? Like the previous question, that's a huge question. <laughs> but look, I agree. And you know, euthanasia and suicide, hugely controversial in all kinds of ways. Um, and you know, we we are in this position where we've lengthened the human lifespan for people in privileged societies like us um, enormously. Um, and, and I think in, like I have an 83-year-old mother with dementia, so I think you, you know, we have done that extremely problematically in various ways. So I totally agree. It's, and you know, we need to have... Barry Lopez, another writer I really love, um, talks about the conversation of death, and I, I think we really need to be having the conversation of death in all kinds of ways. You know, we, we all living things die and living things survive by the deaths of other things. We, we are intimately connected. Life and death are intimately connected. But we, the way we do it in the West is there's all this life and the death thing is over there somewhere. So, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. 
One of my teachers in Bali urged us to swim on the shallow reef before the deep water, observing and learning local marine species and ecologies as well as being in the sea generally. You need to spend time in the ocean, make it your friend. We become familiar with one turtle that seems to always be found in the same patch of reef. We know the batfish are curious and often come to investigate us in the deep water. We begin to understand the diurnal patterns of changing activities and species across an undersea topography that becomes familiar. And fundamentally, we engage with the salt water itself. We taste it, swallow it, rinse it through our sinuses, feel it flow across our, sp our skin. It is both all around us and within us. The tears in our eyes, the sweat on our skin, the blood in our veins, arteries, organs have the same salt concentration as ancient oceans, reflecting the time when the ocean water itself served as the fluid transport in the bodies of our biological ancestors. Deep in the ocean's embrace, on one breath, feeling your mind and body change, free diving is a transformational encounter. Like all of life, it is a journey between two breaths, the first breath of life and the last breath before death, the last breath before immersion and the first breath of surfacing again into air. In yoga and meditation, practitioners speak of resting in the space between breaths. In marine mammal physiology, researchers describe the way seals will drift underwater, not swimming, not breathing, not hunting, resting in the space between breaths. On this blue pathway, naked of technology, with just one breath, the freediver's unshielded body is open to the silent sea. The transformative encounter connects the world ocean to the ocean within, bringing us home to the cycles of how we are born and die alone and together on this planet. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.